the Cranmer Show. This show is brought to you by Bing Pot Trivia. How many times have you been to a trivia night where it just felt like somebody reading questions? Well, Bing Pot Trivia prides themselves on bringing high-energy, dynamic hosts to every event. The show leans heavily on visual elements. Their questions are designed to make you laugh or roll your eyes, while also challenging your knowledge on pop culture, high school science, culinary arts, and everything in between. Their typical show runs five rounds, including a photo round, general knowledge on pop culture, riffs on different game shows, absurd 50-50 questions, and a super sweet music round. Check out bingpottrivia.com today to book your trivia night. Again, that is a bingpottrivia.com. Tell my boy Danny that your friend Quinn sent you. All right, let's get on with the show. My next guest has been part of your TV watching experience for almost 40 years now. You might have seen her in the first role as Ruthie in Follow the Bird to voicing the original best friend of Clifford the Big Red Dog's uh, uh, best uh, Emily Elizabeth to hanging out with Mr. Dress Up and my personal favorite as she clowned around as Lunette the Clown on a big comfy couch. Of course, there's so much more and we're going to get into it. It's my absolute pleasure to welcome to the Quinmar Show, Allison Court. Allison, how's it going? It's it's going very well. Thank you, Quinn. Thanks for having me here. No, no <laughs> problem. Um, so first thing I want to get into, of course, is Mr. Dress Up. Uh, you were just at TIFF for the Mr. Dress Up documentary. And um, I know Mr. Dress Up was obviously a huge part of your life. So um, first, I want to get into the doc. So it's when does it actually officially release? October 10th. October 10th, it drops on Amazon Prime uh, globally. Perfect. Okay, so can you take us like a quick like synopsis of of the documentary? It's the it's the story of Ernie Combs and the impact that this man uh, had in helping with Mister Dressup become a thing, and the impact that that had on our entire country for multiple generations. I love that. It's a um, love story. That that it's actually a love story. When I was a kid, because Mr. Dress would have ended, honestly, I think the year I was born. So like for me, it was always like um, uh, reruns and stuff. Yes. And yeah. I knew Mr. Dress up before I knew Mr. Rogers. And I know they <laughs> always like they talk about the similarities between the two of them. But for me, it was Mr. Dress up was the original guy for me. Right. What the documentary helps bring to light is the actual real connection between those two people, Fred Rogers and Ernie Coombs. So it does a really lovely retelling of the fact that those two were friends mm. and they started out working together on um, a show in uh, Pennsylvania, I believe, initially. And then they came up to Canada together and then... Uh, Mr. So the Mr. Rogers show actually started on CBC hmm. originally and Ernie was part of that show. And then that contract was done for Fred. Fred wanted to go back to the States and get his own show there. Uh, and then um, the CBC was like, well, what are we going to do? And Fred said, build the show around Ernie. He's amazing. That's awesome. So they did. And that's yeah. a really cool uh, person to give you the props to say, hey, like this guy, this guy is the one you want to build around. Do it. Yeah. Yeah. They both, they shared a very similar uh, just love of children, um, kindness, empathy, uh, the arts, just a gentle nature that, you know, 
you know what it's like when you watch and you just feel that and it hits you right here and you feel safe and this is your warm comfy place to curl up and watch and even uh when my my son was born in 2003 Hmm. and i had uh old vhs tapes with some of my old episodes and when he was homesick from school i when he was little i would put those tapes in and he would just sit there and it just it got him through the day that's awesome. Yeah. It, it's I was I was going back and rewatching like old episodes because obviously I haven't seen them in a long time. And it was like I don't know if it's his voice, the music, just like I don't it's it's probably just everything. It's just like a gives you a cozy feeling. Whether yeah. you're seven or seventy to me, I think it's like you just feel like comfortable and he feels like your friend. Yep. Absolutely. Well he was and he never talked down to people and he just he he wanted to have fun, but it wasn't like this pushy in your face. We're gonna have fun now. It yeah. just it was this natural organic flow of like, okay, sure, let's let's make up a story as we go and we'll make some crafts to go along with it. And how mesmerizing was that just to watch him make those crafts? Oh, and it was out of things sure. that you yourself could do. So yeah it was tangible again. It was, uh, he, he was the nation's grandfather. I was you just going to say that. I was, he, he's like, he was like an extra grandpa to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So obviously I'm, I'm going to assume before you're on the show, you were watching Mr. Dress Up and I think they did just over 4,000 episodes, which for Canadian TV is insane. So you watching that as a kid, like, how the fact we'll get into it, but just like the fact that you're on the show, that had to be like a pinch me feeling, you know? It absolutely was. And the thing was, I started when I was 11 and I'd already been acting professionally for a year. So I was like, oh, you know, TV, whatever. I'm used to this stuff. No biggie. I mean, I'd already worked with Big Bird. <laughs> I mean, how much bigger can you get as a oh, kid? Big Bird, like, come on, right? <laughs> it doesn't matter. The first day I showed up on set that morning, there was like it's you don't anticipate it, and it was the only thing I can compare it to is what it would be like to meet the real Santa Claus, not a mall Santa Claus, and no disrespect to mall Santa Clauses who are wonderful for kids to meet and but they're very boisterous they're like hey and in your face come on up and really you know loud and and um not aggressive but assertive mm. and he was the opposite of that it was very like this is the real deal warm inviting gentle because he knew the effect he had on people yeah so he would make it as comfortable as possible right off the bat that's awesome. And like yeah. the fact that you just like, I uh, mean, not, not ever knowing him, but like, I could just tell that, you know, it, that fame never went to his head. Right. It never did. No, he, he, he just, he thought it was, that. wow, this is, you know, right to his last day. Mm -hmm. He thought he, he kind of got tickled by the, the reaction he would get from people. Yeah. Um, but it also, it did, it meant a lot to him because there were, there were those letters and those moments when, adult kids would call into shows or he would go like once the show stopped filming he was still touring and doing going to schools and and community centers and like he never stopped caring mm -hmm. and you know the the interaction with kids uh young and old that he was still getting right up into the last moment um definitely it, it meant the world to him that's amazing um excuse my ignorance but what was the reason that the show ended 
Uh, him, he, I guess people for, for a few years, and they cover this level really well in the documentary after his wife died, after Ling was killed, um, there was, there were a number of years, what, four, I think we continued three or four years that we continued, um, because it was still like, this is what he wanted. Um, and then, but after a while, people started to be like, so have you ever thought about when you might retire? Mm. And eventually one day he woke up and he's like, oh, I guess, yeah, maybe I should, maybe I should do that. Maybe it's time, you know, and it was when that moment hit that it was the right time for him. The f I just can't believe that he went over 4,000 episodes and it was only like a little bit before that. Then he was like. Oh yeah, I guess I could retire. That is a, a thing I could yeah. do. You no, know? that's crazy. Yeah. Well, he loved it so much. He loved the people that he worked with so much. Uh, so, you know, you don't want to say goodbye to that. Hundred percent. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, the span of the show minus two years was from the year my dad was born to the year I was born. That's my dad was born. There you go. So when people say, why, what was it about Mr. Dress up? Well, there's a huge factor. The fact that he was allowed to be on the air, not, not just because, you know, it was like, Oh, we got to fill the content. We got to fill the space. It's because it was deserving of being on the air for that long. And that many generations had a chance to, to, to be affected by the, the joy that was Ernie Coombs and Judith Lawrence and, you know, everybody else that was a part of that. Um, Lois and Hank and Don who all did the music. Like it was, it was definitely uh, a family. Mm -hmm. and, and I love that you were able to like get that feeling all over again by going to the premiere for the, for the doc. So that that's amazing. I'm so excited for it to come out. Yeah, yeah, it will. It'll, it'll, it'll get you. Yeah. It'll get you. You probably went so. into it feeling like a kid again, no? I, I was so excited. I was nervous because there was like press stuff at the beginning. So I, you know, and it was hilarious that like Susan McManus and Jim Parker and Nina Keough and we're, we're all there as like legacy cast members right mm -hmm. Beth Ann was there too Joey was there but a bunch of us and, and you would think like we're performers or whatnot we're really like hi how's it going but we were all like hiding in the back rooms like you go first no you go first like pushing <laughs> each other out the door to do the like press you've never done it before yeah because it's like it's just not how we're wired yeah yeah um so that part was really nerve-wracking but once we got into the theater and the lights dimmed and it was it was definitely a, a time machine back to back to being 11 again. It was wonderful. That's amazing. I love that. Um, I want to go back a little bit. So let's say 11 and before that. So for you growing up in Toronto in like the 70s and 80s, like what was that like for you? Like what was your like home life like? Like was it was your family into acting into movies into tv shows like we'll get into it like how you got into uh you got it, uh, originally into it but like yeah what, what was that like for you well my so my parents were always uh strong supporters of the arts in various ways both loved opera both loved theater uh both loved uh british comedy so i was i was reared on uh monty python in <laughs> fact 
when my mom was six months pregnant, my parents went to see the Monty Python troupe down at, uh, like, near the St. Lawrence Market. And uh, they ended up going to a restaurant afterwards, and the Monty Python troupe was there because they hadn't, they, you know, they had a fan following, but it hadn't hit, like, super, super big. This is summer of 1973. So they had these paper nap paper placemats. And basically, my mom and dad signed the paper placemat. And my mom, they, they were like, hey, who's going to say no to a, a cute pregnant woman, right? Mm -hmm. My mom goes waddling over to the table and we're like, we'll give you our autographs if you give us yours. <laughs> and so they did. They got their autographs on the paper placemat. And they even, they rubbed my mom's belly. No way. So I'm like, so there you go. I was like blessed with the Monty Python vibes <laughs> before I was even born. Um, amazing. And they both like they never they never worked uh, in terms of their careers in the arts. Uh, my mom was in insurance. My dad started out in in insurance, and then he moved in to become a public servant wow. and worked with various divisions of the government. Um, but again, they were always strong supporters of the arts. And my mom was involved in every like the Glee Club, the the theater group all of that stuff at her at her work back when companies were kind of like Mad Men, where oh you know the company was your life uh -huh. they would have ice cream sociables all of that stuff so i i had a very strong like family feeling just from my my parents work environments hmm. um but my mom was very active in her her, her own social time yeah. with these different theater groups she would be in their their theater group where she would direct their plays and their glee clubs and then eventually she uh ended up joining the canadian opera company just mm. as a hobby to be an extra in the opera productions and the extras in the opera are called supers and i think they would get maybe ten dollars a performance oh my gosh if that if yeah. that um, funnily enough, she often was, uh, in the dressing room, like a, a, a cast member, co-cast member with Anne Mervish. So Honest Ed, his wife was That's also a so super cool. with the operas just because they both loved opera and it wasn't for the money. It was to like, they just wanted to be part of it. Yeah. And that's when it was during rehearsals for my mom's production of, uh, my mother's production of Carmen, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that I met Lotfi Mansuri. I was, I was just about to turn six years old and he asked if I would be the child in Madama Butterfly. Whoa. And initially I said no. And then I changed my mind once I bet I went backstage and I got to experience just how loving and warm and familial everyone was even with my mom, who was just like an extra in it. And everyone yeah. was on the same level. Everybody loved each other and was super kind. And I was like, oh, well, this is lovely. I want to be a part of this. It's not at all what I thought. So six years old, started on the stage at O'Keefe Center. That is so there you cool. Go. That's awesome. And, and I love that. Like, it sounds like there was never any like push from your mom to do it. Like, Hey, you should be an actress. You should do this. It was like, they asked you, you said no. Then you saw what it was like. You're like, yeah. No, maybe I'll do it. 
like that, yeah. that's, that's, that's the best way for it to, for it to like become something yeah. because if there's always those times, like if people get pushed into it later on in life, they hate it. You've got to let the child feel comfortable with saying no so that then they know that it's okay. And then there's nothing, there's no extra pressure riding on it other than their own decision. Yeah. Right. And you were clearly a very smart six-year-old. The fact that you walked back your answer because of like, you, like of your own experience, like you, you, you saw stuff. You're like, no, that's really cool. Maybe I do want to be a part of that. Like that's, that's pretty smart for a six-year-old. I think. I, I don't know that it was smart so much as the, the kindness of the people involved. I think there. it was just, they were, it's lovely. Like if yeah. you've ever, if you've ever been backstage for a theater production or a musical or, or an opera, you know, there's, there's going to be the odd jerk now and then diva or whatever but the majority of time it's just it's good loving people who are just incredible at what they do but the ego is like it's not it's not there it's they just want they want to put something beautiful into the world for other people and if there's gonna be anywhere to have ego i feel like that that it would be there so the fact that there wasn't is amazing yeah and we really found um, the the bigger the star in the opera world, like Dame Joan Sutherland, my mother. So eventually what happened was, I should say, uh, she was a super, like an extra on the stage or whatnot. And then one day they discovered that she could scream. Hmm. My mom was a really good screamer, <laughs> as it turns out. And I, I believe the first production was for Maureen Forrester in Electra. Mm -hmm. So in Electra, Maureen Forrester was playing the mother and she gets murdered off stage. Um, and of course, you're not going to ask uh, an opera singer to scream like she's, you know, being stabbed on a roller coaster. Uh that's not going to do good things for the vocal cords. Um, so during the the initial production rehearsals and all, with all of the supers, they were like, what are we going to do about the scream or whatnot? And they decided they were going to have, okay, who here wants to try screaming? My mom went first. And everyone in the room just like the blood drained from their face. And it's like, okay, next. And they're like, no, 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 that's, that's good. We're, we're going with that, right? And even the uh, opening night reviews, I think it was in the Toronto Star, the reviewers started with saying the blood curdling scream that will curl your your toes and turn your hair white. It's so the whole review started That's with amazing. A scream a from someone you didn't even see doing it. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. And so she ended up doing it for a number of operas. Uh Rebecca Kane when she was in Lulu. Um, she did it for Lucia de Lamamore and she did it for Joan Sutherland, Dame Joan Sutherland, who was one of the greatest you know, soprano singers in the world of all time. And it really, like, she was just lovely, the most just gentle, quiet, easygoing woman. And I think, you know, between the two, between the exposure to these phenomenal artists, courtesy of my mom with the opera company, and then... The uh, the experience with Mr. Dress Up, I think those two things have really helped 
I don't know, helped or hindered because I think there's there's an argument to be made for some people who are incredibly ambitious and do have like a little bit of stronger ego mm. that allows them to kind of just shoot for the top and, and go and grab that brass ring. That's just not how I'm wired. No, I mean, I, that makes sense because of what you experienced and like what you grew up yeah, with. Yeah, so it was, yeah, keeping it, keeping it, kind mm-hmm. um number one and, yeah and wanting and understanding that it is not one person it is it takes every single person there to make it happen because i don't know if you if anybody knows this about employers but they don't like to pay for things that they don't have to pay for so take a look around next time you're on a film set or a tv set or wherever you might be every single person there probably needs to be there so therefore they are they are an an essential part of that production being made and the people that you're seeing on screen they couldn't do it without them so and the big studio executives couldn't do it without every single person involved so i love that um i was in a a couple plays and musicals in high school and the uh the teacher that ran them always said there's no small part whether that you're on stage or you're off so i 100 percent agree with that yeah, yeah, it takes I, everybody there. Otherwise, they wouldn't be there. Exactly, that's <laughs> so true. Yeah, and yeah, no, that that's amazing. Um, so, like I mentioned, your first credited role that I know of is being best friends with the uh, Big Bird. No, you played Ruthie and <laughs> Follow the Bird. So, like, how did you go from doing these plays and stuff to being on screen with Big Bird? Like, where? How, what? Fill in the, that blank for me. <laughs> I was really interested about this. So. I was fortunate enough to uh, go to Claude Watson School for the Arts. Ooh. And the, the uh, junior school, so grade four through grade eight. And I auditioned for it and got in for its opening year. It, it had actually technically been open for one year prior to that, but it wasn't the official opening. So when I started there in grade four, that was the official opening year of Claude Watson. And that really, that changed everything. So being able to go to Claude Watson, get drama training, mime classes, creative dance, jazz, national dance, uh, which by the way, I think every school Oh, I'm going to go off on a tangent about the importance of arts. I, in, that's okay with me. I agree with you. Go academia, ahead. like you, you need both mm-hmm. for a a whole person, a whole life, for someone to to go out and enjoy life and achieve the most that they can achieve. You need education in all of those things. Mm-hmm. So, visual arts, music. It was orf, orf. You know, most people don't even, I speak to a lot of music teachers nowadays and they're like, oh, we don't really know that ORF. Oh my goodness. You want the best music training early on to get kids to sight read, to understand rhythm and and the basic relationship between musical notes, ORF, 100%. Um, all of these classes, national dance was where we would get a new dance from a new country somewhere around the world. And we'd actually get given facts about their population, the geography, cultural history, things like that. And then we'd learn the dance. And that was a brilliant way to incorporate um, geopolitical stuff as well as just uh, 
geography and history, all with an artistic overview, right? Yeah. You learn so much better that way. Math and music, they go together. Um, like it, it boggles my mind, any school board, any government entity that thinks the way to move a society forward is by cutting the arts in education for kids. And no sense. You know, watching the watching the documentary of Mr. Dressup, I, I was like, I wonder what he would think of where we are right now with our society and with our government. And you know, it's like Maybe that's the rule. <laughs> How do we put this into our constitution? <laughs> you know, what would Mr. Dressup do? Yeah. And if it's if it's not something that he would support or you think that he wouldn't support, maybe don't do it. Like so true, actually. Yeah. Kindness, empathy, understanding, creativity, compassion, creativity. Um, nurturing, a love for creativity, imagination. Uh, so putting those things, putting an importance on those things being taught in school, um, along with like, do you remember the the breakfast program? Oh, the yeah. The, if like you're like for like the less fortunate kids, they'd get breakfast. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, duh. Yeah. How void of compassion and empathy and just like decency do you have to be to think that school breakfasts for children is a bad thing? Like, or like, that's what we should cut. Yeah. Are they, is I that on the thing anymore? As far as I know, we don't have the school breakfast anymore. No I don't know. Throughout, I think throughout all of my time, I think it was elementary school. It was a thing. No way. Yeah, it's... Uh, I don't know. I just, I, I think we need to find a way to implement what would Mr. Dressup do I love that. You, <laughs> before you, anybody you, makes a decision. Start running for uh, part of office and get that in there. Yeah. Any part of government, you got to get in there and use that tactic. Yeah. Well, I think his, uh, either one of his kids, um, well, Chris lives over in the UK, but his daughter, Kathy, she would be phenomenal in politics. Oh, yeah. And then his, uh, Ernie's grandkids, would also be incredible. Jessica or Liam, like, anyway, they're, that family is, it's wonderful. They're so smart and just like dropped and gorgeous. Um, so maybe we'll convince them to get into politics. And then use that line. <laughs> what, Mr. Or what would Mr. Dressup do? Yeah. I love that. I love that so much. Um, so, what I was most surprised, one of the most things I was most surprised about doing research about you was that you were the original voice of Elizabeth, uh, Emily Elizabeth in Clifford the Big Red Dog. So, like, where did voice acting come from in this? Because you were still young then. So, like, the fact that you were, I know Clifford wasn't Clifford then, like he is now, but just that you were like an integral part of the beginning of that. So can you take me through that? 
Sure. And I realized I didn't fully answer your question before, but it was going to Claude Watson School for the Arts, where they used to get calls for auditions. Um, so that's, that's first of all, where I auditioned for Mr. Dress Up. It was through the school. Oh. But then I also went on to some other auditions um, prior to that when I was about nine years old and uh, had a really, really eight and nine years old. Yeah, grade four and grade five. Um, so I ended up getting an agent through that and then oh. that's when the tv started so it was the summer after grade five had just finished uh that i i did follow that bird so i'd already done a few cartoons or not cartoons sorry commercials um and the first tv i ever did was tvo i did two episodes on a, a series on tv ontario called you can write anything um and then a bunch of other shows started to happen. Vid Kids, which was way before your time, but should try to find it someplace. I will. I will. YouTube's the best for that. Yeah. Um, and then follow that bird and then everything else after that. And so when I was 11, I got a call to go and audition for Ewoks, the cartoon. And I got that job. And Nelvana was, it was still a pretty small animation company um so i started doing edison twins episodes and voicing on their cartoons kind of at, around the same time and once you were one of their kids they really they like to use the same pool of people again another really strong family vibe at the time uh so yeah sunny thrasher who was on edison twins and then did we did a bunch of cartoons together my pet monster um he he and i kind of grew up as like brother and sister in a way because we we ended up playing tv brother and sister so much and they just became like best friends um there was yeah so there was a group of us tara then turned off now strong um so we actually we were at school together we went to Claude mm -hmm. Watson together, grade eight. Um, and then uh, we were drama majors together in grade nine at Earl Haig. And that was that was not a good experience. We both left the school after that. Oh, um, really? oh yeah, because Tara and I were both working professionally at that mm -hmm. point. So we were missing a lot of school. And then our drama teacher decided to try to make a spectacle of us and yeah that was that was not good so That's he ended up I mean the whole like the vice principal and whatnot they got kind of ripped a new one by both my mom and Tara's mom and uh we both sort of said good riddance and went off and had awesome careers so Bye. and this was grade nine that was grade nine wow yeah, that was grade nine I'm assuming you did some sort of homeschooling I did not. I was, uh, I ended up going to Etobicoke School for the Arts. Oh, okay. So I just, I, towards the end of grade nine at Earl Haig, I ended up auditioning for Etobicoke, switched over there. Cause I was, I was a West End girl anyway. True. Um, I grew up in the West End. So it was like, you know what? The only reason I went to Earl Haig was because it was the continuation of Claude Watson. It had the Claude Watson School for the Arts program there. 
Um, but it was also, it's a big school that had all of these different conflicting programs. They had a gifted program. They had the uh, athletic program, like Seneca athletes, special athletes program. Then there was like just regular old high school and then the Claude Watson and the different students. There was a lot of antagonism I guess between the different groups of students and the the teachers and I guess financially who's supporting what mm. anyway no Fair. I mean and you mentioned that you had auditioning for the school and I'm like thinking that's weird but like no duh it's for the arts that so like what kind of audition would you have to do to go to a different school you would so you had to choose your major hmm. I chose music theater that was another reason to switch to Etobicoke school for the arts because uh Earl Haig didn't offer musical theater as a major, but Etobicoke did. And that was, I was like, yeah, that is totally my jam. Like, I don't have to choose between singing, dancing, or acting. I can have all three in one program. Hi. Uh, so you choose the major that you want to audition for. And you go in and you do a private audition. Oh, okay, that makes sense. I got you. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I, I love I love that. Um, so the last thing on um, Emily Elizabeth and Clifford, they were it was never a TV show for you. It was like little movies, correct? Like little videos. It was yeah, it was like the the sing along video or something like that, and and they were they were home videos. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Got you. They were home videos, That's and I mean. that was done through again. Uh, so Steve Hodgins, who I worked a lot with, he was always a producer for a bunch of stuff that I did through Nelvana. Um, I remember that being with him. So it was that same group of people. I love that. Yeah. And then years later, you know that I also voice directed the most recent. Yes. That includes in you, which we'll get into. Okay. I, 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 th I saw that. And I was like, oh, that's so sweet. That's like, she like went back. Obviously you couldn't be Emily Elizabeth because you, you would have yeah. went down as young, but that's so cool that like you went back to like the Clifford family, I guess you would say. Well, also, I couldn't be Emily Elizabeth because I do not sing like Hannah Levinson sings. Oh, Hannah God. is just, ah, like, she's phenomenal. I love that. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, so there was, going through your uh, IMDb, a few uh, names that popped out of me, like shows, whether it be like a handful of episodes or even like one. Um, Babar. Monster by Mistake, Brace Face, Timothy Goes to School, My Dad the Rockstar, 16. Those were all shows I grew up on. So, like, did it come to a point where there was, like, during your career, it was like, hey, want you for an episode of this show, one episode of this show, here's four of this one. Is that is that basically, like, how it went? Yeah, that's a, so that's kind of a standard thing uh, with voice directors. We will, for, like, one-off episodes, if there's a guest character here, a guest character there, producer, producers will usually ask us to paper cast, um, which just means, who do you know that would be appropriate for this role? And that's, so, yeah, huge part of my career was being paper cast. And so there's a lot of cartoons where I'm like, did I work on that show? Oh, yeah, okay. Because it's just, like, one or two episodes here and there. So it's... Uh, it's hard to keep track sometimes, yeah. but it is, it's a very common thing. We paper cast a lot. Um, but it's also, that's been, that's why it's so important uh, to, to get as much representation in front of casting directors and voice directors as possible. And I'm usually reaching out to uh, agents to be like, who do you have? Who's new? Who's new? Who's new? Because 
you do like there will always be the the Julie Lemieux and and Corey Doran and and uh, Devin Mack those those three just coming to mind who are like super versatile and I know in a pinch I can be like okay calling him in because I need like three different voices or whatever or yeah Julie's just gonna like voice every character in this episode for me because you can do that um but you want to make sure that you're opening the door to new the new next batch of like awesome go-to people uh because you can't there's no way to break into that until they get in front of you in the first place right um so it's it's really important. I think the reason that in Toronto that we've done so well and maintained such a strong voice industry over the years is because we understand the importance of refreshing, refreshing that pool. It doesn't mean that you don't cast the the tried and true, um, you know, legacy actors. It just means you always have to be giving opportunities to new cast. Uh, and not everybody is going to last. Not everyone is going to be the right voice. Like there were, there were several shows where I ended up actually being a recast for somebody because the producers were like, you know, we want to go with somebody new. Okay. Let's, let's bring in this voice. Oh, she's got a really, really cool voice. Let's go this way. And the person would have an incredible voice, a really cool voice could do stuff that I can't do. Um, but at the end of the day, they just didn't quite get it. Right. And the, the voice acting thing just, it wasn't gelling with them. And so then I was brought in to kind of give them what they knew would work. That's so cool. Yeah. Like, like I said, like, obviously, um, me knowing you most is as Lunette. So like seeing all these, all these like cartoons that you were part of like voicing, I'm like, no way. Like these are all shows I was watching daily as well as big comfy couch. So it's like, it's cool that like you were so much more a part of my childhood than I even knew up until like the other day, last couple of days, like researching for this. So like, no, like that, that makes this interview that much cooler for me. So I just thought I, I would throw that part out there. Well, I'm, I'm glad it's cool for you. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> um, one thing that, that stuck out to me that I thought was uh, pretty interesting was Elvis meets Nixon. Can we go, can we go over that? Cause you played uh, Priscilla Presley. So I did. Where, where did this come from and how did you get the King of rock and roll's wife? Um, I'm pretty sure it was, I'm trying to remember the year. So I know I was living in an apartment on Isabella Street. It's so funny the things that you remember. It's, it's, it's a small, odd things that. that yeah, but I remember sitting and I'm watching, and I think Melrose Place was on, mm-hmm. and Priscilla Presley was on. She, I think it was Melrose Place. Um, anyway, she had a, a semi regular character, I think, and I looked at her, and she had like this short, sort of red, short hair at the time and I was doing I had my hair that way because um I was doing a lot of lunette appearances in the states at the time and so I wanted to look very different when I took the hat off Mm. so I had short red hair and I remember watching her on tv and I was like she looks like me (laughs) so I actually called my agent. Well, they called me. They were talking about something else. And I was like, hey, I just wanted to put it in your head. If there's ever any call for like 
they need someone to play Priscilla Presley or she needs like a, a daughter or something. I'm, I'm your gal, right? Next thing you know, guess what? There's an audition. And I went to the audition. I remember sitting in the waiting room and it was Katie Griffin. And Katie, Katie's another phenomenal voice actor. But I remember, this is actually the first time I ever met Katie. It was at the live action audition for Elvis Meets Presley. And we're sit we were sitting there in the waiting room. And she looked at me. She's like, you look just like her. Oh, my gosh. And I'm like, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Alan Arkush, who directed the film, he told me after the fact, uh, there's a there's a thing that you know a lot of american productions would do which is called padding the file and they would um hold auditions for certain roles in canada because at the time there you know you had to make best effort to cast it locally and then bring in your u.s stars right and they had fully intended to cast priscilla with an american actress so this was a padding the file audition but then when I walked in and they were like, okay, well, she looks like her. And then I was funny. <laughs> so it was like the two of them. So he and uh, the producer was also named Alan. And the two of them kind of looked at each other like, well, okay, then I guess we're, we're casting Toronto for, yeah. for this character. So that's how I got the role. That's, see, that's interesting how they just decide before even meeting with anyone, hey, it's going to be someone from the States automatically. That that's is, Do you know the reason for that? Yeah, it's because they don't, you know, when, when people come here and they've never shot here before, or there's a, maybe there's a um, sort of a standard thought in Hollywood or New York or wherever that... Yeah, you don't want, like, Canadian actors, okay, well, it's going to all be, like, I don't know, beachcombers or something. <laughs> um, so you're just going to want to, like, go through, the, go through the motions, make it seem like you audition people and you couldn't actually find the role, and then you can bring in whoever you want. Um, so I think it was just that they weren't familiar with our talent pool. True. Okay, I guess that makes sense. Um, so the one that I am most excited to talk about is Lunette the Clown. <laughs> um, and I, and I did hear in other interviews you've done that there was an interesting audition process. So can we get into that? Cause I, I didn't, I only heard that part. Then I stopped cause I want to hear it for the first time from you talking to me. So can we get into the audition process? Absolutely. There were, there were a couple of stages to this. So I was 16 working on a Mr. Dress-Up episode. And Cheryl Wagner was there puppeteering Annie. Um, that was her character. And in the Mr. Dress-Up episode, I actually had to read a story to the audience. And during the rehearsal, I remember going, I we did it. We Because the way that Mr. Dress-Up would work, we would do two rehearsals and then we'd shoot live to tape. So we did the initial um, tech rehearsal. And then I remember going into the green room waiting until it was time for the, the dress rehearsal. And Cheryl comes in, she starts looking at me and she's like walking around me, circling around me, looking at me up and down. And she starts to tell me about this, this new 
show concept that she's putting together and sort of explaining it to me. And I'm half listening, half being like, you're freaking me out. Because just to, for, for clarity, Cheryl's daughter, Harmony, was my classmate at Claude Watson. Oh, no way. So I'd known Harmony and Cheryl since I was eight years old. So to me, I was like, why is Harmony's mom looking at me like this? <laughs> like, this is really weird. Um, and then by, by, I think it was the dress rehearsal uh, break, but after dress rehearsal, before we taped, she had brought Karen Velo in. And Karen Velo puppeteered Chester on the show and uh i think karen was coming in to shoot the afternoon episode anyway so she just got there a little bit early and cheryl was like see what i mean blah 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 blah. i'm like okay now cheryl and karen are both being weird looking at me and then by the time our we had filmed the episode rob mills karen's then fiance soon to be husband was brought in cheryl had him come down to the set and that was the first time i'd ever met rob and so the three of them talked to me about this demo that they were looking to put together for this new preschool show. So that's where the conversation started. Uh, it wasn't that long afterwards that we ended up shooting a demo. Wow. And I think it was like, it was either at one of their houses or at like a little community church that was really close to their house, but in the basement they had the couch. So they'd had the couch built for quite a while. Oh, no way. Yeah. And we shot a demo there. And at the time I had long red hair. Um, and I remember it, the outfit was like a rust colored overalls and a yellow top. Hmm. Um, but it was just Molly and me shooting the demo. And then once the show got greenlit by Owl TV, it was sorry, it was Owl it, yeah, Owl was the big backer and and YTV. Mm -hmm. uh, and once that got green lit, they were like, well, now it's a thing. Now we have to have a say in the casting of this lead character. So Cheryl sat me down. She's like, look, we have to go through the audition process because everyone needs to have input now. Um, and I was like, that's fine. And the audition process ended up being a wonderful experience. It was, I think we did it at the little the church just at sort of Bloor and Spadina I think Grindle Kachirka was there uh Granny Garbanzo mm -hmm. and she took us through like the movement part of the workshop and it was just it was very very physical very creative movement um and improv a lot of improv and and really sort of pure clowning techniques which I to be honest I had no knowledge of like mm -hmm. fortunately i i had taken mime classes at claude watson so that really helped a lot and i'm naturally klutzy even though i'm a dancer i'm incredibly klutzy so there was a lot of stuff there that helped um but each actor each girl who was there during the audition we all auditioned together oh so it was sort of like this creative workshop thing um and then we would we would have to do certain individual things at times sort of in the group or whatnot and i guess it got things were filmed and then at the end of the day uh owl and ytv signed off on me um wow. because i think and there were there were other actresses there who i think brought some you know 
in different aspects that would be arguably better in different places. But when it was combined with my dance experience, my theater experience, and then professional experience, um, I guess I was the safe choice to go to. Yeah. Certainly my experience from Mr. Dress Up really, really helped. That's amazing. Um, it was funny because uh, my sister used to watch it with me. Uh, she's a couple years older than me. And I was telling her the other day that I was having you on. And I just showed her the picture of you and Molly. I said, yeah, I'm interviewing her. And she said, Molly? I said, no, that wouldn't be a very long conversation. <laughs> so, so speaking of the doll that didn't talk, what was that like? Like, I know there was obviously other humans on the show, but like a lot of it was you talking to yourself. So like, what was that like? Was that like a, was that like a hard process to come up with? Well, you know, you, you ask an interesting question because it makes me kind of go into some self-reflection and, and I'm having a bit of a chicken and eggs sort of dilemma right now because I talk to myself a lot. Okay. So like fair. all the time mm -hmm. I put voice to inanimate objects. I have three cats. So they are always answering back. I'm always talking to them. And then I'm always having, like I have arguments with myself. Like it's, I have no doubt that all of my neighbors think I'm really just woo, right? And I guess maybe I am in a way. Um, <laughs> but I, so I don't know if I did that a lot before Comfy Couch. Mm. I mean, we always have internal conversations going on, right? Yeah. But I guess it maybe it was more internalized and now everything just comes out. Like I just, I, every internalized thought, it's no longer internalized. It just comes out. Um, so I think I adapted pretty quickly. I think it was, it, there wasn't a huge learning curve there. And, you know, if we were doing the couch scenes, unless it was one where I was holding Molly and on my own. So she was a doll. Yeah. And I some for some reason I was talking to her that way. That was very, very rare though. Mm -hmm. So most of the time she was being puppeteered. And so it was someone. So it's amazing how much how much uh sort of feedback and emotion can be conveyed just by by the the puppeteering. Um so it it always worked. I found Bob always gave me a lot. Bob Stutt, a tremendous amount to work off of. That's awesome. Um, yeah. yeah. And that's so important for uh, like a performer like you. Like you need that to make the performance that much better. Because, yeah, there, there might be times where it is kind of difficult to talk to a just think in your head you are talking to a doll. But, yeah, if you're thinking you're talking to Bob, you're talking to a kid watching, like that obviously is going to help you so much more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was always the thing too. Yeah. The way that Cheryl had described it to me for looking at the camera, talking to the camera, it was the kid at home mm -hmm. and it was pick one kid. Don't, don't be like romper room where you're trying to look through the cameras, like see all the children or performing to a, a stage, a, a theater crowd. It's pick the one kid. So we all know one little child in our lives. Pick that kid. That's who you're talking to. God. And then, when I would talk to Molly, Molly very quickly had Bob's personality. So in my mind, Molly was like a bit of a little, <laughs> like she, she had sass, she had an yeah. attitude. She could be a bit of a jerk. I, I mean, that. Lunette was always, 
you know, a bit of a jerk. <laughs> that was kind of the point. Like we would learn, we learned the, the way to go about things by Lunette making mistakes, mm-hmm. which is, you know, I find a lot of shows or most shows nowadays don't allow that really for your main characters. They always have to be perfect. I don't remember if I'm making this up, but it's like, I remember an episode where like she either lied. What was her friend's name? The guy on the unicycle? Major Bedhead? Yeah. She like lied to him or broke something of his yep. or something. Yeah. And she lies about it. She's like, mm, mm, mm. Yes, and he does the okay, lie a lot yeah. of pants on fire. Dan? Yeah. Yeah. Scram, scram. Yeah. I can't believe I remember that. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah. Like things like that. Like because I remember that because it wasn't a known thing to watch a main character of a kid's show make mistakes. Or she make lied. Mistakes. There was the when she got angry, the wrong side of the couch episode. Mm-hmm. um there was the big bang boom where she's like super bossy yeah. and making molly do something that she doesn't want to do and yeah. she has to sing the i'm a total bossy pants song like yeah there was a lot there was a lot of that but it wasn't where the whole episode wasn't just about lunat being a jerk it was you could see the emotion the emotional journey that kind of got us to this place you could see the mistakes that were kind of happening along the way because kids can relate to that, mm-hmm. you know? And then it's like, Oh yeah, I kind of see what I did. And then you, you show the importance of kind of taking a step back and acknowledging and then owning it and doing what you can to, to fix it. But also the importance for on the other side, those who got hurt or affected by your actions also accepting and moving on. Right. Yeah. True. No, hundred percent. Um, when you guys were filming the show, like, I don't know if it maybe took a couple of seasons or it was like right off the bat, but like, when did you guys feel the popularity of the show? Um, so we filmed first season in 1992. Mm -hmm. It aired in March of 93 in Canada. We hit the, air in the u.s in certain regions like we never hit it boom we went we were never pbs national Mm. it was all it was always the local affiliates would choose to pick up the show and we i believe we started on the air there in 95 it might have been slightly before that because i'm trying to remember No, I think it would have been, was it 96? Uh, Easter of 1996. It was either 1995 or 1996 that I was at the 96. White House. Sorry, that's when I was born. Yeah, okay, thanks for that. <laughs> yeah, I'll just go take my um, steel pills now. I'll be yeah. right back. Thank you. Um, I think it would have been Easter of 1996 that I was invited down to the White House by Hillary Clinton to be a guest and to read stories to kids during the Easter egg roll. Uh, because she, one of her big things was literacy. Yeah. Um, early childhood literacy. Uh, so that was a huge honor. Um, so it was, I guess, the year prior to that in 1995, we were, we started on the air in the U.S. And I think initially it was like most people didn't really know it by the time the fall 
rolled around, I was, I believe it was in Atlanta. Okay. Georgia. Uh, where it was like all of a sudden things were different. I was doing appearances at the store of knowledge at the time. Um, and I was there on behalf of Time Life. So Time Life had booked and they did our home videos. Okay. And so I was there promoting the books and the home videos. And my the hotel that I was staying at was connected to the mall. And I'd done a, a morning appearance and then I'd gone to my hotel for, you know, freshen up and have lunch and then come back. And I stayed in my costume because it was not a big deal. So I was just there on my own, hands in my pockets, kind of skipping through the mall on my way back. And I remember Hope Burchler, who was my handler from Time Life, comes running up to me. She's like, we can't, uh, okay, so hold on. We got to just, uh, we, we got to go the back way. And I'm like, What? What do you mean? And she's like, oh, I'm just waiting to find out from store security if there's a way we're probably going to take you outside the mall and around and come in through the storage way, through the back. I'm like, why? And she's like, there's a crowd. It's big. It's kind of crazy. And so I'm walking with her and I look over and I see a lot like the mall looks like packed. I'm like, where? And she's like, that. And it was everybody that I was saying, oh, I'm like, don't worry, I'll see you inside the store. I'll be fine. She's like, what? And I take off because I'm five feet tall. And so I quickly, I just cut through the crowd. I'm going under people's arms. Not a problem. I Before they even know what just happened, I'm in the store up on the couch. Um, but it that was the moment everything changed because the crowd was like, the store was not ready for it. They they had not anticipated those numbers, so they were desperately trying to get um, stanchions from everywhere else in the mall to, to wrangle the line and, and getting more security to come on. Um, and from that point on, every, every appearance that I did, whether it was Store of Knowledge or uh, Zany Brainy, Noodle Kadoodle, FAO Schwartz, for, there was a time when I was going around opening all of the new FAO Schwartz's. I even, I was at the grand opening for the one in Las Vegas. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's amazing. That's so yeah. cool. So it was once it, when it went boom, it, that was that. That's so cool. Yeah. Well, the, the one thing I saw was that you appeared on the Rosie O'Donnell show. What? So how, how did that come about? Just because of things like that, like all those appearances, they said, okay, we want you on this show. So the Molly doll was just coming out or had just come out, I guess, that within that year. Um, we were actually doing the live stage touring production of the Big Comfy Couch. Um, so from the like the fall, winter of 98 into winter of 99, um, we were doing a production across the states. And it so it was it was to promote the tour, as well as uh, promote the Molly doll. And the reason that we ended up getting on that show is because Rosie's daughter was a huge fan. She loved watching Couch with her daughter. That's awesome. And it was a crazy show because I'm trying to remember everybody that was on. I know that. 
David Hasselhoff, I think, was also on that episode. And somebody else. Was it Martha Stewart? Oh my God. I don't, I what don't a combination. I don't think it was Martha Stewart. It was, but there were two, like, huge guests before us. And the time kept going over. So it looked like we were just getting bumped and bumped and bumped and bumped. So originally, we were supposed to come out. We were going to close out the show. I was supposed to come out, do an interview with Rosie on the couch, and then sing Jump for Joy. Yeah. And it basically got down to Rosie coming out and saying, Hi, Lynette, how are you? We're going to jump for joy. And that's basically like it just, it got so truncated. And then they're, they like pull out. And, you know, as I'm singing the song, it just starts, it goes to credits or whatnot. Yeah. Um, but that was fine. Like we, we still, we sat, we talked, and she was lovely. That's so cool. Yeah, I remember coming home from school every day as a kid, and that was my, my mom's like favorite show, talk show to watch was, was yeah. Rosie. So when I saw that, I she was the first person I told that you were on it, and she she thought that was really cool. She made sure that I brought that up because she loved that <laughs> so much. Yeah, um, it was a uh, it was a wild experience, and Rosie O'Donnell was great. She was lovely. That's awesome. And awesome. I remember that everybody in the audience had got a, a Molly doll. They were all under everybody's chair. No way. That's sweet. <laughs> it's like Oprah before Oprah. That's same time, but it was, yeah, yeah that, that, that's awesome. Would you rather car or a Molly doll? Molly doll. Yeah. Less maintenance. Less maintenance. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the last thing I had on a uh, comfy couch was the clock stretch. So yes. that thing was really popular. So like, did they present that to you right away saying like, Hey, like you, you're going to have to do this, this clock and pretend to be a clock kind of thing. So no, we had we had rehearsals mm -hmm. before we ever filmed, um, and again they were very much uh, movement oriented. So I had one on one time with, um, like uh, Grindle was the the main choreographer, and it would be Cheryl Grindle and me. So for like the Miss Lunette's Dance Academy stuff, we would work out choreography. So it was very collaborative. Mm -hmm. And then same thing with clock rug stretch. We knew that this was going to be a thing. Cheryl had always envisioned this clock rug and her body would move like the, the hands of the clock. Um, so we talked about things that made sense and, and Grindle was getting to learn what I was physically capable of and, and things like that. So yeah, the choreography for a clock stretch was very, very collaborative and it was very based on what I could physically do. Fair from above right <laughs> yeah yeah 100% that's like that is probably the the first thing me and I feel like a lot of people around my age think of when they think of comfy couch yeah. is a clock stretch 100% yeah and the 10 second tidy and the 10 second tidy you know how many <laughs> teachers of mine use that so Good. many in kindergarten and like the early like grade to one to two and stuff they yep. they, they love that which hey if it works it works right absolutely um, and so the, the last thing I wanted to mention was we talked about this earlier about being a casting director on Blues Clues and You and then Clifford. So um, obviously the, there's a huge difference between being in this show and then being a casting director. So how do well, you... it was casting and directing uh, and directing. Got yeah. you. Okay. So how did you get into like that side of things? That's obviously completely different than voice acting or acting. It is. Uh, there, there are a few, a few things that led to the that ultimate thing. Um, one, uh, as a, as an actor, 
I was always very, um, I think my skill set was about the technicalities of things. Even from an early age when we would do commercials, there were there were kids who were like way better dancers or way cuter on camera, like just sparkled. But they weren't always like technically acute so or accurate rather. They would, you know, they didn't really understand what it meant to hit your mark and get your lighting and like continuity and things like that. So I quickly became someone a go-to for for that aspect and with voice acting there was a similar thing where you know my my voice wasn't necessarily the best voice or 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 whatever it might require for that character but I was technically very good mm -hmm. and I would I was really good at learning my script and understanding the backstory and understand like the nuance for line deliveries so throughout the course of my voice acting and and acting on camera certainly with like couch um i started to have like a i guess an awareness of how things should be done or what was supposed to be happening at the time and whenever i would work with directors that hadn't read the script i guess and it was very apparent and i knew what was going on so i'd be in the booth with another actor and the actor would ask a question and we'd wait i would wait for the voice director to respond. And then they would either come up with the wrong answer or they wouldn't have an answer. So I would turn to the actor and be like, it's this. So here's what's supposed to be going. And here's here's something that can help it or whatever. Because there were often a lot of new actors, especially with video games, right? We were with that voicing. Um, and that's where, uh, I guess, so my, my ex-husband, um, Eric Suzuki, was very aware at the time that okay here's this actor but she's also she's very good at directing the other actors so okay let's see let's give that a chance um so i did a lot of directing for him and his company but i never i never went public with it i never solicited work that way because i've been warned very early on by uh a friend, a coworker, um, her name's Tracy Moore. And she told me, she took me aside one day and she was, she was voice directing something and incredible actor too. Great voice actor and theater performer. And I remember her, we were going out for lunch break and she put her arm around me. She's like, if you, if you're ever thinking of making the move to voice directing, make sure you're for sure want to do it. And don't ever think that you're ever going to act again. And she's like, this, this industry, it's BS. I don't know why, because there were loads of men who, even to this day, um, had no problem. They, they would voice direct and they would still get cast in things like they were still the go-to, but with women, it was no, how dare she? Well, I'm not going to bring her in on my show anymore because she's competition. Yeah. So Tracy had warned me and I saw what would happen to her career. And I was like, Oh, okay. I don't want to do that. So I put it off for years and years and years and years. And then finally in 2014, um, a bunch of shows that I thought were going to go as a voice actor. They didn't. Um, I was a single mom, uh, with a very smart, um, but consequently expensive child. Uh, so, um, yeah, I finally, I was like, 
I need a job. I like, I have bills. I've got to do this. I don't want to turn to my family to pay my way. So I put out a, an email to just three people saying, Hey, I'm finally making that leap ready to voice direct. So if there's anything that you think I'm a good fit for, let me know. And within 30 minutes, uh, the head of nine story emailed back and said, we've been waiting for you to say this. We've got a show for you. We'll touch base in September. Wow. And that was that. And I haven't looked back. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. That's so cool. I love that. And, and like, like I said earlier, um, well, not even earlier, sorry. You're, you are literally a Swiss army knife. Every, almost every part of the industry that like in that little like bubble you you've done, like the big components. That's, so that's, that's amazing. Good for you. Cause that, that's, that's awesome. The fact that you still did it, even after your friend said like, uh, I don't know. And, and you're still doing both. You, you've done it. You're doing them all. No, I am. But the best way, like in when it comes to me actually uh, voice acting or acting it, it, you know, I have to pick my moments and a lot of times it's now doing stuff that I'm producing mm -hmm. because the stuff out there, either the rules are just like, oh, no, no right. more of that. Thanks. I, I'm beyond that. Not, not beyond that in terms of I'm too good for that. I mean that I think my, you know, age and everything else, it's like, it's just not, it's not suitable anymore. Um. Or it's like, I'm not on people's radar anymore because they're like, well, she's voice directing now. That's, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. So it is, it has become that thing. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm lucky that I have, uh, there are companies that I have a really great friendship with that they're happy to be like, yeah, we're not interested in anybody else. We wrote this for you. We want you. Let's do this. So. I love that. Exactly. Yeah. So that, that, that's amazing. It, it's the friendships along the way that really end up helping a, a yeah. lot. Yeah. Playing yeah. a big part, right? So yeah, that, that's amazing. Collect well, often, good people. I've taken so much of your time and I really appreciate it. So thank you so much for coming on here. Um, thank you. Uh, you are a part of the documentary, obviously. So if you want to plug it again quickly before I let you go. Mr. Dress Up, The Magic of Make-Believe, dropping on Amazon Prime, October 10th, worldwide. Watch it. Uh, it will make your heart sing. I'm so excited for it. So uh, I'll definitely be watching it. So yeah, again, Allison, thank you very much. Thank um, you, friend. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I will talk Likewise. to you later. Okay. Bye. Take care. And that was the Quaid Bar Show.